This episode of the Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links and for being patrons over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 323, we're going to foster a new generation of gamers while we talk about playing D&D with young people. And we have a great panel of experts joining us for this discussion, and I'm going to introduce everyone. But after I do, I would like each person to talk about their experience with young people in D&D. And to make sure things are fair, I'm going to start off by answering the question myself. Uh, I ran a middle school gaming club after 14 years of teaching middle school social studies. Um, And for several of those years, I taught, uh, I, I sponsored, I guess, a middle school gaming club in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I've also played at home with my children. I have an 8-year-old and a 13-year-old, as well as reading D&D novels with them, introducing them to other fun products like coloring books and, and all the other sort of stuff in the gaming and D&D culture that they've all sort of uh, found an appreciation for. Uh, and before we jump into our guest, Tracy, what has your experience been? Uh, my experience here is to take notes because I have a 3-year-old. <laughs> Um, I have done a few things that involved uh, kids. I did uh, run games at uh, conventions where there were kids present, and I did help Susan one year at uh, Susan Morris at Gen Con run uh, design an adventure for Girl Scouts. There you go. And that, and and I've, I I know your personal life a little bit. I know that the little one has been uh, getting into some pretty geeky D and D related <laughs> stuff too. Yes, he's definitely <laughs> looking over all of, he's helping me review all of the new books, uh-huh. uh, and I did get him the new um, little books from uh, from Wizards of the Coast, the introduction to uh, D&D. Excellent. You should get him the Ivan Van Norman's book, the ABCs of D&D. Those are cute. Yeah, I got them that RPGs, too. That's what it is. Yes, yep. I got that at Gen Con, I think right after he was born. Very cool. Mine like the Wee Beasties books when they were little, too. <laughs> well, since she's already talking, why don't we go ahead and introduce uh, BJ Hensley. Uh, she, no, that's fine. She is the founder of Playground Adventures and the vice president of Lone Wolf Development, the makers of Hero Lab, as well as a freelancer for just about every major D&D-related publisher you've likely <laughs> heard of. Uh, BJ, what is your experience with young people in D&D? Uh, so I've been gaming with little people for most of my life. I have six children of my own, ranging from 23 all the way down to 10. And we, we just had a, a new grandson last year. So I look forward to gaming with children for many, many years to come. Uh, also, I have uh, headed up groups at schools and um, scouts, youth group, a variety of other things to Uh, teach social skills, provide social toolkits to children with ADHD or autism or just, you know, shy kids, whatever it is. Um, So I've spent well over a decade helping kids out through gaming. I believe that tabletop games are amazing resources for teaching children education, for improving math, for, you know, improving reading skills and also providing social toolboxes for for day-to-day life. So it's sort of been my shtick for most of my life. And I mentioned that you're the founder of Playground Adventures, and it might be relevant for for listeners to know what that is. 
So Playground Adventures is a family-friendly gaming company. Uh, many years ago, uh, when my oldest was just getting to the point where he could run his own games, I didn't have time to write all his adventures for him, as fun as he thought that was. So I started looking around for other companies that did you know, family-friendly or children's games or that gave advice on it or anything to that effect. And I realized that, that, that at that time, there was next to none. And, and now we have you know wonderful things like the Adams who, who are doing great things with that. But right now at the time there wasn't anything so I eventually ended up starting a company based on the fact that myself and other parents there was nothing out there and now we produce adventures for you know just for families for ages four and up we produce adventures that helps teach relevant educational skills like for the hive has stuff all about bees in it for example we have after school adventures which are meant for youth groups and you know just busy parents so they're very short adventures uh, we have adventures that help people learn D&D out the gate, ones that provide advice for those just learning the game with children. So the whole company is basically about children and gaming. We do have a 12 and up line as well, um, but most of it's just children's stuff. Excellent. Uh, next, I want to introduce Ethan Schoonover. He is a technology STEM ed educator at a girls' middle school, uh, or has been. Uh, Ethan, why don't you talk about your experience with uh, young people in D&D? Yeah, so uh, about three years ago, I took a left turn from my kind of more corporate um, career path and decided to go and work at a girls' middle school. And uh, so I, I started teaching, I started working in there as the technology director. Um, and I actually resigned that post last just this last year, but I'm going to keep going doing the other fun stuff that I ended up doing there, which is the running the D&D club. And that was... Um, it was sort of a side, you know, a side thing for me at first, uh, but it rapidly developed from just being a club to also teaching a D and D class during the day. So there was a period of time um, over the past two years where I was running D and D at least like three times a week in like a, a, a formal setting, two of the, two times a week for like actual credit, student credit. So that was. Um, that sort of it just monopolized, took over my life, and in a really fun way. And uh, we grew from uh, I think six girls at the beginning to a third of the school currently being involved in that club. That's amazing. Yeah, I tell you, and my my former yeah my former life prior to that was things like advertising and design and technology. So <laughs> yeah. very uh, different. You know, a lot of people think that you know uh, working at Wizards of the Coast is is the dream for a gamer, but but I think you're you're doing it right there. I mean, you're gaming about as much as they are, I imagine. Oh yeah, no, it's it's uh, constant, and I, I mean, I think anybody who has gamed with kids. I don't know if it's true for all ages. I'm, I'm also starting to, by the way, run like public games. I'm trying to just make an effort to um, reach out and run games at like friendly local game stores and make sure that they're actually friendly when kids walk in to play, which I think is not always the case. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, yeah, that's true. I think that's wonderful that you're doing that. Yeah, and that, that's been a very different experience, but a very positive one. Um, and it's brought like I, you need different skills in that, in that scenario. We can talk about that later, maybe. But um, I, I mean, for sure, the best gaming that I have done, including gaming with grownups, and I love all my adult friends, but it is with kids. Awesome. I would have to agree with that, honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, and, I, and I've had a blast playing with when I've played with kids as well. Uh, lastly, but not leastly, we have Mike Lawton, a high school teacher in Milwaukee who's already back at school, um, which seems way too early to be doing that. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know you have experience in this arena as well, so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your what you've been doing with uh, gaming and young people? Yeah, so I've been a 
high school public teacher in Milwaukee public schools for 12 years. Uh, I've always taught in Milwaukee. And uh, seven years ago, I started up a game club there with the express purpose of, of bringing all of the multifaceted benefits of games to what are underrepresented demographics in the gaming community largely. And uh, me and a colleague started it. I've uh, been playing D&D for 10 years. I've been playing Magic the Gathering for 20 years. Been playing lots of other games my whole life. And, and he was about the same. Uh, he, he's since left it, but I took it over and, and really grew it. And now we have uh, this huge game club. Um, it's just a, a beautiful melting pot of all of the demographics of the city that all come together after school in this extracurricular place to uh, have a space to game. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you, 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 both you and Ethan talked about starting a, an after-school game club and how it sort of grew and, and uh, you know, started bursting at the seams. And my experience was, was the same. I started off with like six kids who found out I played and were kind of interested and said, hey, will you run this for us after school? I, I put up a couple of flyers for, for a club and, and pretty soon I had over 20 people and I'm like, I need more DMs. I need to go every yes. other week with people. Like I can't handle all mm. these kids at the table. It was crazy. Uh, I think how it happened. Yeah. I, yeah I mean, a lot of it is uh, mentoring students to um, – training them to mentor each other and you don't have to be the person – you know, running games, answering rules, doing things like that. Uh, teaching peer-to-peer -peer is very powerful uh, on both sides of that uh, experience. Yeah, I, I th and I think uh, we'll have an opportunity to talk about that. Look, mate, three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. And that one doesn't even make sense because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies, Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends. But I'll let Tracy introduce the topic before we dig too too deep. <laughs> so if you haven't guessed yet, in this in this episode, we're going to be talking about gaming with young people, both in the school setting and outside of schools, and hopefully giving our listeners and me some insight into ways <laughs> that can help spread the joy of gaming to new generations. So I guess let's start off with the the question of how is gaming with young people different than running with adults? I heard some some talk about how gaming with young people is is even more fun than gaming with uh, their adult friends. So, so how is it different? Anybody who'd like to go first? <laughs> we're, all being super, we're all being super polite. In yeah. This. yeah, that's what I was doing. I'm ADD, so I have to try really hard to do that. Yeah. <laughs> BJ, I feel like you should tell, you start with this. 
Uh, sure. So it is, it's, it's vastly different in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the things I love about children is they just aren't as rigid as adults. It's, mm. it's my favorite thing. So that's the topic I'm going to pick for that. Um, you can play with them and their imaginations just burst forth and they come up with all kinds of things. They think of things that you would never imagine as an adult to think of yourself or see other adults thinking of, you know, they, they will make friends with the orcs. They will decide to play a pig, you know, it, whatever they, they always have neat um, solutions for puzzles or problems. Mm. And it's just very cool to watch them get excited and come up with new things that after many, many years you still haven't heard before. Okay. So the, the kids are creative in, in terms of their solutions. I find, a, and I think this speaks to that as well. Adults are sometimes like they know the tropes, they know the the archetypes, right? They know kind of yes. how, how those narratives yeah. are supposed to play out. So they try yes. to play those roles. Um, when you don't That's know exactly those right. those things, you, you just sort of go crazy, right? Well, and sometimes the, the most fun thing about children, because we, we start playing with children at four. So I will take, you know, four-year-olds from, from wherever they come from, friends or, or mm -hmm. youth groups and things like that, and start groups with them. And many of them don't actually know what an orc is. Or they, some of them, I've mm -hmm. actually come across those who didn't know what a dragon was. And to be able to explain that to someone for the very first time <laughs> and watch their reactions and see them play through the process is just phenomenal. So that kid's touchstone for what a dragon or what an orc is is going to be based off of what you told them yep. uh, you know when they were four years old that's incredible it's just amazing to be able to help form young minds and their imaginations mm -hmm. going forward yeah can mm -hmm. i maybe i can uh, just pop in for a second i want mm -hmm. to say something about um sort of kids perception of of role-playing games versus adult perception of role-playing games especially for the role-playing game community and uh, hopefully there are a lot of people that are listening to this that are interested in maybe they already are but maybe interested in, in contributing or volunteering or starting something at a library and in the role-playing games community um, when you talk to adults, everybody knows things like Critical Role, and there's this whole big resurgence of D&D, &D, and it's in the press, and you, you come across it, and you come across it on YouTube, and there's streaming, and there's Twitch. Um, my The middle schoolers that I work with, and maybe, Mike, this might be different in high school, and I'd be curious about that, but the yeah. middle schoolers I work with do know none of that. Like, they right. literally, like, just absolute zero um, exposure to most of it. See, I find that the elementary school children have that, depending on, you know, unless they're my kids. Um, right. But yeah, they've, they've been playing since they were very tiny, even when they weren't playing, their first characters were like my familiars. But I find that middle schoolers and high schoolers both tend to be very aware nowadays of, of Dungeons and Dragons. That could be regional, though. So, you know, so they're, uh, yeah, they're aware of D&D, &D, but from a, at least in, in my middle schoolers, you know, this might be a, a different subset. Um, mm -hmm. You know, working in Seattle, it's a pretty broad demographic that I work with. But yeah. it, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, they're um, the way that they most of them have been exposed to D and D has been through Stranger Things. Oh. Ah, Same. I, I would agree. That in middle school, so <laughs> I would have thought that. <laughs> yeah, what is it like for high school, Mike? Uh, yeah, the it's pretty mixed. Uh, I would say the majority, but not overwhelmingly, uh, don't have an experience of consuming content uh, related to D&D. &D. Uh, it's, it's more pop culture things, like Stranger yeah, Things, that's a, that's a huge one. Mm. Uh, but they don't come in with these, uh, yeah, like, like big preconceptions of, of how it should sound and how it should look. It's, it's very free form. I find that the things they're interested in doing is a lot different than uh, the, the things I've done in my adventures with fellow adults. 
Especially yep. uh, I know I've come across a lot of eighth graders who watch Critical Role lately. So I mm. wonder if it's just maybe that eighth grade is the is the mark or something. Or, it's, the or just this thing. is just the the year or two that that's starting to hit. You know, sort of. And in that, that could age. be. Yeah. Absolutely. Could yeah, be. I I found in in my years of running a middle school gaming club is that usually I would have like maybe three or four people that were really aware of D and D and and maybe they'd watch some of those things. But they would then recruit all of their friends who were completely right. not exposed to it at all. So I'd have a core group sense. of people yeah. who knew Critical Role and then right. 16 people who had no idea what we were talking about. So, yeah. That sounds right. Well, yeah. I have various levels of participation, too. You have your, your core <clears throat> nucleus of, of students that never miss a uh, after-school club day. Uh, and then yeah. people who kind of come in and out and, and they're more casually involved. Uh, but the, the enthusiasm is just effervescent flowing down from the the – uh, the the core people that are really yeah they get really making excited. it exciting and, and we attractive. have we have game game club and there are definitely um, children that just sort of come in occasionally and then there's the ones that are like I want to play every week if possible I've I've got a girl right now that I'm teaching to DM because her goal is just I want to be able to DM DM for all my mm-hmm. friends and mm-hmm. she's super excited about it and then there's you know other ones that are like well we don't know we just kind of want to come in and try it and they don't quite it's not that they don't enjoy it, but it's just not quite their cup of tea. But I've noticed more and more the last two years, especially, that even the ones that it's not their cup of tea because their friends are doing it, they're coming in occasionally. And, you know, that's – a couple of you have mentioned the idea of getting the play, the, the, I'm sorry, the kids involved in DMing. And I was going to ask about that later on, but since it's come up and I'm curious, um, how does that happen? Because I worked really hard in my group to try to get some of the, the uh, students – to start DMing because I couldn't handle all the tables. And mm-hmm. the one year there was one other, there was one student who was like, Oh, I know D and D really well. I'll DM. And it kind of went okay. And, uh, other years it just, nobody was really interested in even attempting it. Um, and so I'm just curious how that happens with, with your experiences. So for my groups, I, and I, I suspect this is different depending on demographics and, and just your play style or whatever, but mm-hmm. I find that children are generally excited to, to try it. Um, I think one of the problems that I see fairly frequently in people that come to me for coaching on that is that they themselves portray DMing as so complicated the children mm-hmm. are afraid to step out of their comfort zone and give it a go. So one of the things some people will hate and some people will not that I tell most of the people is anybody can jam. And when they start asking, but what if I I can't remember 97,000 rules or what if I get the dice rolls wrong? I say to them, no one knows what you're doing behind that screen. If Mm -hmm. you roll a die and it's not what you want it to be and you're afraid your friends are going to be mad at you because you killed one of their characters, you are the GM. You don't actually have to kill their character. No one's going to know if you got the numbers wrong or if you added the math wrong. They're not going to sit at the table and take an accounting of what the addition and the multiplication was. And that tends to put them at rest. And I find how that works is they don't just spend their life DMing, you know, quote, wrong. Um, But they start out almost like a storytelling and they're kind of fumbling through a little bit and then they get braver and that gives them confidence. Mm -hmm. So they start learning and doing better and absorbing all the rules a little bit more until they become pretty functional DMs. A lot of times it's about fear. Yeah, and if I can jump in there, because it's something I was going to talk about, how differences I've seen with young people, is that they really care more, and feel free if this is different, to tell me if this is different from your experience. In my experience, they've 
cared a lot more about the story, even the DMs and the players, so than the rules or, or totally following agree. and stuff like that. I agree completely. They care a lot more about the story. And one of the problems I've seen, I don't call it a problem, but, but one of the struggles that some of the GMs that have come to me for counseling have had is that their players are children. They're more story-based, and those GMs are more mechanical-based. So they're mm-hmm. trying to get all the mechanics in their tiny little heads, and they're just more interested in watching the TV inside their brain that's unfolding. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that I think that's it's just something... Great description. It's just something... Thank you that you have to do in stages. I don't think with children you start out with number crunching unless you've got a mathematician in the family. I do have one of those. <laughs> um, <laughs> most of the time, it's you start out with the story and the, and the, the math and the numbers and the love for the rules comes yeah, later. That's, that's a good point. I think I think uh, anytime I tried to recruit students, it was, it was from that core group of people who really knew the game or at least thought they really knew the game. And so they were very much uh, focused on, on the <clears> mechanics <throat> and on the rules, right? That was what was... Important to One of the things, the well, and that's cool. One of the things that you can do if you have some that you really think should be interested in GMing or have, you know, shown a, um, that they would be good at it or shown some interest but aren't going very far is let them co-DM, um, not even yes. necessarily intentionally, but if you start out with, well, can you run this encounter for me really, you know, during during the adventure because I think that would be special. And then they'll run it and they'll get comfortable with that. And then you can move it up however you feel you need to scale-wise, but you can end with, hey, why don't you co-DM this for me? And that allows them to get comfortable because even children who are very good at the rules, most children have embarrassment problems. They don't sure. want to be embarrassed in front of their friends. They yeah, don't yeah. want to get Long. So that allows them to kind of take baby steps along the way to to get to the end result. At least that's my opinion. I'm sure yeah. there's different ones. I can kind of share how it got going uh, at my high school club. Yeah, that'd be great. So uh, it grew really organically. I was uh, running the club for a few years and had a collection of board games. Um, I'm really into magic, so I was playing lots of Magic the <laughs> Gathering all the time. And uh, I had a collection of D&D books and a little bit of minis and, and some other accessories and, and dice available. And uh, I never really took off. Some people like borrowed some books and, and, and it never got going. Uh, and then one year, this group of kids uh, were, were checked out a lot of books and were really intrigued by it. And for about two months, they spent all of their time just building characters, character mm-hmm. after character after character. And, and I would you know, I have no agenda that, oh, okay, you have to, you know, play or play this way or, or whatever. And, and they're really into drawing, uh, making art about their, their characters and the items and maps and all these things. And it was, it was just really cool. And they're making all this cool fantasy stuff. And I would just say, okay, like, you know, uh, do you want to start your adventure? Do you need any help getting that going? Uh, you know, uh, can I point you to some resources? And, you know, they're, they're like, oh, we're cool. We're good. You know, we're just, uh, I'm just making another character because, you know, like, I, I kind of like this one better. And and I think it speaks to a lot of how way more into the story they are than, mm-hmm. you know, fighting and min-maxing and grinding a dungeon or anything. Uh, and then one day I showed up and they were up and running after two months. And, I, <laughs> you know, I went over there and uh, this ninth grade African-American girl was DMing and just doing awesome. And and was just had such charisma and such command of it, That's you know. Great. When they started getting goofy and out of line, she would just announce, uh, "Okay, uh, poison arrows coming out of the walls. Everybody, uh, roll a damage check." <laughs> uh, I'm sick of you guys talking, <laughs> and just 
it just had such a natural knack for it, like nothing I'd ever natural seen. It was, it was great. Too. I was so happy to see it take off like that. And it just grew from there ever since, got bigger and bigger and fragmented into more groups. And so, you know, I didn't really have a big agenda of how to go about it or anything. I just sort of, it was just sort of, if you build it, make it available, they will come. They will come. And That's it cool. happened. <clears throat> That's great. Sure. I'll comment really quickly, too, yeah. on, on how things grew for us. Um, so I ran for a year. Uh, I started off with, you know, six students in club, and then I ran, like, a, a class of 12 students. That was the first year. And I, I DM'd entirely myself that, in, that entire time. Mm-hmm. And... When I started to talk to the, as the club started to grow a bit, I talked to the original six students. We they call themselves the OGs, the original gamers, and <laughs> it's nice. they, yeah, they, they're really and they they have a really tight bond, and they've sort of they're sort of the core, the, you know, they've been the sort of the the beating heart of the whole operation. But I, I mean, I'm going to be really honest, like I, I kind of indoctrinated them into my style of play. And I love how he should tell the story of how he started them out. The very beginning of how these kids started is. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. This is super important. To, actually, I think that's a huge thing. So I start them off. Um, we don't play D and I guess in a traditional sense. We start off at zero level as commoners, as villagers, mm-hmm. and we like for the very first group. I made them roll like three d six, like no no four d six. Drop a die. It was like three d six. Your stats are your stats. Like going back to like how I grew up in the '80s, you know. I walked to school, you know, three miles in the snow, man. You're gonna do it too. And uh, so, yeah, since then, I've I've softened. I've softened my stance. But but you know, it's funny because I've gone back and asked them, and they're like, they all have such fond memories of that, and they, they all loved it. Um, which I think goes to show that like having that kind of like super heroic, powerful character, although can be fun, and that's a big part of it. Um, having that that hero's journey for the students was really a uh, fun time for them, and you know they just they have they had like one of them was like a cook or something as oh, their yeah. village life. Yeah, they, so no, they also start off. I had them roll like a d30, and I'm like, here, you know, I have a table which is behind the screen, so I'm some of it's off the table, some of it I'm picking, and I'm like, oh, you get, you're a glass blower, you're like a cook, you're a stable hand, and you know that was it. Like that was the extent of their character was like stats. Um, I'm trying to remember if we picked race at that point or if we were only humans. And I'm actually, I'm not sure. We might have only been humans, but, and they got, they got their job. And then that was it. And then like, they came back like a week later and they had like written backstories. Like, you know, they had like, <laughs> they had like inter-party, like, you know, um, relations and like familial relations. Like this is my sister, but she doesn't know it. And, you know, so that's another le- difference with kids, I think, is you can give them a very short length of string and it'll become this long, yes. long thread of story and narrative. Um, <laughs> but just to just to put a cap on my DM story, they so those original girls, I picked, I asked them, I asked for volunteers and I had like three volunteers from them to DM initially, actually maybe two volunteers. And and we, were, we needed one more person and I was like, well, who else do you think it should be? And they picked who I thought was the quietest girl in my D and D class. And they said, you know, she, she's, she'd be really good at the table. And they didn't pick her because she's like, um, weaving fantastical stories. Although it turns out she can, they said, you know, she'll be great at managing the table. And she really was. And I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges for student DMS, especially I think in middle school and right. you know, maybe it's different in high school, but man, middle schoolers, that tension of managing your peers, cause you're running a small class essentially at a table right. and 
having to manage people and that that can present a whole different set of social problems for kids right yeah. I know you, you've got to look for the bossy one i'm gonna tell you what the girl that is doing that's learning to dm in my all girls group she scares me i mean if she told me to be quiet <laughs> i would she's got it handled <laughs> yeah and that's actually really good advice uh and really good things to think about i think that was one of my struggles is that uh, a lot of times the the kids who are really into D&D, who are sort of that core group, were not always the most confident and bossy uh, people at the table. So they kind of let the other middle schoolers walk all over them sometimes. Well, I think there's steps that you can take to, to alter mm-hmm. that. So one of the things that, that I do is I use games to, to, to provide a social toolbox that might be lacking in some children. And I find that after running for them for a while, they do become more confident. You know, we use speaking yeah. tools and things like that. And it, and it does help them to gain that confidence. So it might take some time, but you'd be surprised who oh, can yeah. become the confident you know, leader in the party, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Uh, so I guess I want to go back the loop around to, to the question I was going to ask originally after that, that uh, first <laughs> question. Um, and, and it has to do with the age of kids. Uh, I know, BJ, you said that you started introducing kids to D&D at four. And I'm curious what other people's experiences are. Like, what's the age that kids can or should be taught to play? And how do things change as they get older? And we actually have the the range from from BJ teaching kids at four all the way up to Mike teaching kids in high school, uh, so so how does how does that work out? Uh, so what do you guys, first of all what do we think about the age? What age can kids be taught to play? I think that's really dependent on the child. So mm. my children grew up in a gaming household. I, I work for gaming companies. I write for gaming companies. I, I've been here a long time. So my children sort of learned how to play D&D by some form of strange osmosis. Um, they would they would hide under my table and listen to us games. So it was very, mm. very easy to transition when they were started saying, hey, I want to play too, to, mm-hmm. well, here, you can play Mommy's Familiar. Um, one of the things that I think is important is just looking for, for, you know, are they interested? I think that it's difficult to take a four-year-old who knows absolutely nothing about fantasy and just sit them down and have them start playing. Um, you have to start before that with certain tools. One of the tools that I recommend most is basically choose your own adventure bedtime stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you sit down and you're like, you're, you're telling a story and you're like, so how do you think the princess should handle this? Or if you were the princess, what would you do? And even you can even go so far, like, like my children have their dad tells them princess and night stories, and they are the, the characters in that story. Um, so if you start with that when they're, you know, three and then do that until they're four, four and a half, they actually have an easier time of setting down at the table and, and keeping things simple. I think for a child who is not already immersed in the environment, you're probably better are off at kindergarten first grade age hmm. that's so fair it just, yeah it sort of depends on the family i feel like my youngest probably started around that same four or five year age and 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 he'd been around it as well right i'm i'm a i'm, I'm pretty well in, inundated yeah. in the culture and, and I, you know the books are all around and i got the gaming group over here all the time and and they'd been my my kids have been sitting around and watching me and my friends game you know on a regular yeah. basis and so they get into it and they want to play and the first time I actually had my youngest play a, a full-fledged real D&D game, so to speak, you know, uh, make characters and use the rules as they exist, uh, was one time when I had written something and I needed to play test it. And I'm like, uh, okay, you two, we got some time this summer. Let's sit down and, and play this adventure. Um, you know, and it worked out well, yeah. I mean, he, he can't, he, was, he wasn't at a point where he could read all of this stuff, but that actually 
is not necessarily a bad thing because like well, you guys- Well, it teaches them to read. They, they want to sure. absorb that information. So they there's, very quickly become better readers. Yeah, there's definitely some of that going on. And some other games that we played later on, he started to really work on the math piece and all that. Uh, but at the, at the same time, that's also where that creativity piece that, that you guys talked about earlier comes came in was that he wasn't hung up on what can my character do. He just described, this is what my character does. And then I tell him to roll yep. a die and look at his character sheet and tell him if it worked, you know? Exactly. Well, and there are, like, if you, if you start really young, there are tools like Hero Lab um, <laughs> that can get children past that, you know, sort of curve of they can't really do all the math themselves. And it's great for, for children who just hate math, too. It really kind of <laughs> gets them pulled into the game. I think one of the pieces of advice that I should probably give, though, with uh, as much as I'm an advocate of charting, starting children as, as young as possible and letting them learn to create while their brains are growing, one of the cautions I can provide is that it is definitely dependent on the family demographic or the demographic of the, the GM. Because if you are a very technical-minded, very rule-based, rigid GM, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you provide an experience that children cannot enjoy at a young age, you will sour them on it for pretty much the rest mm. of their life. So it's, it's, it's something it is – GMing for children is a gift that you have been given and you should use it wisely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, th I don't think I started my kids on it until they were, they were hungry for it. You know, they were, they were yeah. desperate to start playing with that. I'm like, okay, now let's, let's sit down and play some games, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so at the same time, things evolve and change as the as the students get or the students the kids get older, right? Um, so, how does that change the dynamic of of what it's like to play with kids? I guess BJ, you, you've, you've got the experience. I feel like I'm the only one talking. Well, <laughs> and, but you also have the breadth, right? Other people can talk about what it's like at 12 or what it's like at 15 or 16, uh, but you've done it all. So. Yeah, you've got six, you have six kids, BJ. You've heard yeah, it. I have a lot of experience. So I found with mine and, and with the, the various youth groups and clubs that I've done over the years, it's certainly evolved. Um, I think they went from just sort of imagining whatever and, and me just saying, okay, you can do that because yes, can to them really starting to think more and then the rules came together for them and then they started being more independent. So I would say probably about third grade-ish is roughly, maybe fourth depending on the child, is roughly around the time that they start more or less fully thinking for themselves because when you have kindergarten grade children, there's a lot of them having ideas but a lot of it is still them going, what are my options? You know, or, or, or can what you can give me choices? What yeah, should I do? Well, and what should I do? And and they can sort of have, you know, get paralyzed with too many options. So that's the time and age in which you're like, okay, here's two or three choices. Pick one. Well, by the time they're in third or fourth grade, they're starting to make those choices without you and, and new choices even without you. And then I think as they get, you know, higher in elementary school and definitely in middle school, they're they're absorbing the books themselves. They're, you know, inviting friends. They're they're planning events, and then definitely through high school, I would expect them to be GMing for their friends, and and it just goes into adulthood. Obviously, that's the shortest version I can get, sure. but it does definitely change. You know, children are growing to become adults, so just like you know, parenting, they take on more authority of their own as as the years go by, and you have to learn to sort of let them do that. That because it teaches them independence in gaming as well as life. Maybe yeah, I mean, you can talk oh. about middle school and I could talk about high school to follow that yeah, up. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I tried I mean, to really, minimize so there was stuff for you guys to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I mean, we, you know, roughly, I, I mean, I, I won't address my own children. I went through a similar um, process as, as BJ described as well, you know, sort of stories evolving into role playing games. But um, I would say for middle schoolers, um, one of the things that that I try to be very conscious of as I'm introducing them and over the like over the years as they are exposed to D&D is very slowly increasing the complexity, like not not laying it yeah. all out there right away. Um, we, you know, I think having a, a real narrative and story focus is super important. Um, having rules, but, you know, keeping it, I, I, for example, let me, let me use an example to clarify this. Uh, I will only start off with your ability scores and modifiers, and I, we won't do like all the different skills. Mm. So, uh, I may have them do like certain skill checks later on. I'll say like, well, this is like uh, kind of a challenge where your strength is really important or your dexterity is really important. We're going to do like an athletics style check here, but I'll just have them look at their dexterity number for instance. And that whole con, you know, just that is so much complexity for these kids when they're mm -hmm. when they haven't been exposed to D and D before. I think the mistake a lot of people will make is like they'll take these you know giant rule books that we have. Which I mean, if you think about it, like I you know I grew up, um, Mike, I grew up in Wisconsin, right? I grew up in Central Wisconsin, like you know six months of the year snow back in the eighties, and like I would just like pour through the basic D and D book, which was really thin, really skinny. You know those oh. old basic D and D books, and today these three books these are essentially like the same size as the ad and d books like that those were huge books back then i remember mm -hmm. thinking that and i think the you know the kids today like when they look at the my my students when they see the player's handbook they look at that and they're like overwhelmed right. and they can kind of get through like a race or two or some classes but so one of the things i do is i print out the basic pdf for kids mm -hmm. because it has sort of all the rules in it and it's and we'll just i'll, I'll sign up say like just read like pages 10 to 15 that's all you need to look at right now and really give them bite-sized mm -hmm. chunks when I'm really trying to teach them the rules. So scaling the rules slowly, giving them bite-sized chunks, um, not laying all the rules out initially. Um, those are, I think would be key things to keep in mind. Maybe, Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll go over to high school now, I guess, Mike. Well, I, and I can speak a little bit to my middle school experience as well. Um, oh yeah. Sorry. So, so I, I, I was similar in that I didn't want them to get too bogged down in the rules and get overwhelmed by throwing a player's handbook at them or whatever, rather than um, giving them, you know, I'd give them little chunks of pages just for character creation. And other than that, I would be like, well, here's the basics of what you need to know. When I ask for a roll, you roll a D20, you add something to it, and then I'll tell you if it worked or not. But otherwise, don't worry about the rules. You'll sort of pick it up as we go along and play. So I didn't have them read any of the rules at all. Um, it was just sort of that brief introduction and making characters, and then we'd start playing. And once they started describing they wanted to do something, then I would sort of make that a teaching moment for everybody at the table of, okay, great, so here's how we'll do that. And then everybody sort of sees how, how it works. And within three sessions, they know the rules as well as my adult players. So, mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that, that I do that, that I find helpful when I'm starting out new players that are younger, whether they're middle school or elementary or whatever, is I actually print out... Um, cards and like index cards size cards mm. and they have like you know at most five but depending on the age sometimes three you know races classes whatever and a very brief description of what they do so that way they're not faced with this giant book of crunchy rules right. they have you know here's here's the index cards that have your your races here's the index cards that have your classes and and that's the basic understanding and sometimes i will do i i've been known to do weapons too um I don't let them pick spells from the 
giant massive spell list. I have, mm -hmm. you know, when they're starting out at level one, they don't need very many. So I just minimize it into the most valuable and ones that I think they're going to be most likely to, to want and let them pick those. So if they can have five spells, I give them a list of like eight, please pick five of these. And that way it minimizes everything. It's just some index cards. It's kind of neat for them to put them together like a puzzle and be like, hey, I've got these three index cards mm -hmm. that, that make up my character or whatever. And then they, like like you said, they they absorb the rules kind of on the way and we, we learn as we go, so to speak, before they get to the point of being faced with a giant book that scares them. Okay, so, so then Mike, uh, as they get older and they get to the high school level, how does that sort of evolve the, the process of uh, and the gameplay with them? Yeah, I mean, what's great is you can have as much complexity as you want to it. You know, I mean, a, a kid gets introduced and... We make a character sheet, you know, we'll have pre-gens that they can jump in with and things like that. And, you know, my, my rules for the club are, you know, pretty simple of things like, you know, make sure everybody's having fun. You're expected to be a mentor to new people. Uh, you know, you're, you're expected to be respectful and inclusive and things like that. And so when new kids come in that aren't familiar with the game, I'll, I'll introduce them to a, to a play group that's going on and say, hey... Uh, this is so and so. They, uh, you know, they want to try D and D. So let's give them a pre-gen. And can it be your job to uh, help them through this session and and explain the rules and all that stuff? And everybody gets that. Uh, you know, they they'll uh, they'll adjust and and explain more what they're doing. And and I'll model that and remind them of that. Oh yeah. Uh, so how did you calculate that? How'd that go by again? And and yeah. Did you did you see how that went down? And uh, you know, use a lot of peer-to-peer -peer teaching in that way, which, uh, you know, just, just builds awesome character on both sides uh, and, and makes for a really welcoming experience for most folks that come through. And uh, when, when they're ready for more advanced stuff, uh, I have a little library of, of all kinds of books and editions, and I ask them what they're interested in, and I can, I can point them to a little bite-sized chunk, and they can check out the book for a while and, and browse through That's it at their leisure. Cool. And... And yeah, just kind of uh, take each each play group as far as they want to go. And and you know, as, as I alluded to before, they're uh, the my high schoolers seem way less interested in the running numbers at all, mm. and and they're just way more into the story. And you know, our our roll and dice just to have fun and just mm -hmm. do do random skill checks to see what I can get away with. And, <laughs> Uh, and uh, they're way more into the, the story and the art and, and creating things artistically about it uh, and just, just using it as a means of, of social experimentation and uh, pr pursuing it through that way. And, and I make sure everybody can do that in a, in a fun, safe way, too. That's awesome. Yeah. And you mentioned, the, fabulous. you mentioned the idea of pre-gens and that's actually something I tried really hard at the beginning of my gaming club to use. It's like, hey, this will be easier. We'll be able to jump in and start playing uh, on, on, okay. on meeting one. It'll be great. Here's your pre-gens. Pick, pick from this library of pre-gens and, and we'll go. And every single time I try to do it, every single kid at, at a middle school level, and maybe it's a maturity issue, maybe it's uh, maybe I should have limited options or whatever, like BJ uh, suggested. Um, but every single one of them was like, no, I want to make my own character. Like, that's the fun. Yeah, but we're going to spend two months making characters. We only meet for a few hours a week. You know? <laughs> and, and I've got 20 people and none of you know what you're doing. So I got to walk every single – oh, it, and it took forever. That's but they, they wanted to the make most... their characters. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, they still do. 
They oh, so yeah. do. That is most people's experience, I think, with trying to use pregens. I really don't often recommend it nor do it. I mean, it's worked several times before, of course, because there's always the exception. But one of the things that, that I think should be pointed out is that these these are all great, but most of these children we're discussing are children who, who are interested enough that they want to tough it out and they want to make their character. Yeah. With the other group that you have or the character, the kids that come in and they're like, oh my God, making a character is so complicated. And so they're mm. like too much math because like you said, they mostly seem to care about the story and not the numbers. And again, um, not to stress the other company I work for because it's really not yeah. about advertising. Mm -hmm. I was doing this well before I got on there. Um, Hero Lab is a great resource for that because when you have, you know, several groups of, of high schoolers, like I, I don't know, one of them, I think we had people doing five in a group and we had like 22 people or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we really had one group that had more, but, um, what we did is we use Hero Lab because you can make a character literally in minutes. So instead mm -hmm. of, oh my God, I have to learn all these rules and you've got 16 books at the table and everybody's sorting through them and asking questions and having a panic, you can use Hero Lab and, and whatever's turned on is what you use. Everything's in there. It's point and click. It gives you suggestions. It's not going to let you put anything on your character that you can't. It's, it's going to do the math for you. And mm -hmm. it's just such a quick experience and they get what they want. So they have time to enjoy it. And then hopefully they'll get into the numbers because it's really good for their math um, later on. But they're in the beginning when you're just trying to get them in and get them involved and all they want is the story and to hurry up and start. It is a, a valuable tool to have, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think those kinds of things are great. Uh, unfortunately, I also find a lot of those kind of online tools end up being blocked in schools. Uh, yeah. and so that's a whole other um, issue. Uh, I actually found, and I know this- you can have them unblocked. So if you go to the right. school administrator, they will unblock them from either various computers or tablets or, or whatever you have. Usually, I mean, I can't speak for your school, but right. our schools will. Yeah. Uh, and that said, the and I know this is primarily a and d, &D podcast, uh, of course, um, but I actually found my, my greatest success with introducing kids to, to the game or to gaming was actually using Fantasy Age because it's <laughs> it gives options, but it's a lot sleeker and faster to throw characters together. And so they get the experience of crafting and building a character that's just, just what they wanted. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I, I could sit down with a group of eight middle schoolers and in half an hour, all of them have characters and we're playing. That's uh, great. And so I found that to be a really good game uh, for introducing people to, to gaming. And, it's, and it continues to scale and, and get more complex as you get further into the levels of the game, which is exactly how... Uh, what you need, right, for teaching people uh, how to play. No, it's true. That's that's exactly what my company is building right now. We're actually uh, getting ready to launch our own rule set, and it, it is basically a game designed to be modular, and it scales depending on the age of, of the person or complexity of game you want all the way from four all the way up to, you know, adults. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I look forward to, to seeing it when it comes out. So. Yeah, I, I should mention, you know, briefly, when I started the D&D Club, I actually did not, I was not settled on using 5e for the rule set. I was mm. um, playing a lot of DCC RPG at the time, and I still play a lot of it, which is Dungeon Crawl Classics. Uh, it's a Goodman Games um, product. Oh. This is not this is not an ad or a plug, but uh, I, I love I love DCC because it's very uh, it has an old school feel. It's very lightweight, and one of the that's where I, I sort of cribbed the idea of starting off at zero level because you start off at zero level uh -huh. in DCC, mm. and so I will often and there's a lot there's an, a nice online character generator for DCC which you oh, can use cool. it. They're pregens, but they're um, what what they're very lightweight. They're like index card size. 
and you can just like literally hand a stack of them to students and they'll they'll flip through them and pick out the ones that they want um so there's sort of that's sort of an in-between state between um rolling up your own character and sort of picking out from a, a bunch of pregens and because there's so many of them that mm. they are essentially like oh well that's i want to be yeah i want to be the stitch digger who has a shovel that sounds potentially useful it's, and why not he's got an intelligence of six but he has you know strength of 15 so um there's a lot of great games out there i, I think one of the things that should be mentioned for younger children since we've mentioned things that are good for sort of middle school age is shanna has or money cut games has yes. no thank you evil and my kids loved that. And the company's great. The people there are great. And it's wonderful for elementary school kids. Uh, and even some middle schoolers enjoy it. It's just great to yeah, start out. Make the kind of learn the endorse. concept along the way. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep, that's a great game. And we, you know, it's interesting. I was at uh, one of the game tables the other day with my middle schoolers. And I was, I was doing some scenario with some like lizard folk that have been killed, and there was they the lizard folk were good. They were not. It wasn't like a, an evil race scenario. It was like these are people you have to go help. Um, you have to figure out what's going on. But it was kind of a horrific scene, you know, to come across these lizard folk bodies. And I about halfway, you know, this happens a lot when you're playing with kids. Is like you can see that that like the blood drain out of their face, and they kind of like look horrified. Like, what story are you telling us right now? And some yeah. of the girls were really on board with it. Some of them totally handle it, no problem. But the line is different for different students. And I could tell one girl was like really having a hard time. So I really scaled it back. I pulled back and I said, you know, right. we're going to press pause for a moment. And I feel like this is kind of a dark scene. And I want to come up with some ways for us. And so we sort of collaboratively developed safety tools at the table. And one of the girls at the table had played No Thank You Evil. And she was like, hey, I think we should say we should have a code phrase for when we're feeling um, too scared of stuff and it's gonna be no thank you evil. And so- Oh, I love it. Isn't that great? And I that think that's wonderful. sort of like- wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's a great uh, I think plug that's, for that game. That is very important too, that that you're mindful of that when you're teaching small children. So some of the advice I give in, in A Friend in Need, which is one of the books I wrote advice into, is that there are a variety of different ways to handle death at the table. And some mm. children are simply too young or don't have the maturity to handle it. So you can just have them be defeated and become your friend or have them defeated and run off. You can, mm -hmm. you can do the magic video game disappears when they pass, you know, when they die. That way there's no actual death per se involved. Right. Uh, and I think that's important, especially if you're starting your kids out at four and five. Now, mind you, I have ran for four and five year olds that were all about death groups of little boys, man. <laughs> but mm -hmm. there are the sensitive ones. And I think it's important that we be mindful of that. Yeah, I think with my with my own child, my youngest, uh, when we started him off, I think the very first adventure I ran that one that I was playtesting was all like puzzles and traps at the beginning and then all undead at the end. So it didn't quite oh feel like, you know, uh, as much death, right? Because yeah. busting up a skeleton isn't the same thing as stabbing somebody it's in the chest. It's not the same. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, um, totally. I, I actually um, intentionally pull back from having any sort of um, humanoid races being yeah. bad guys that are mm. getting killed because I don't want my students to go home and talk about having murdered a bunch of humanoids to their parents, first of all. Yeah, we try to make the um, bad guys that are human be savable in the end with extra yeah, experience for and doing most, so. Most of the monsters that get killed in my games are like more like uh, insects or, yeah, undead or, you know, uh, snakes made of mist, you know, things like this that are very like not in any way related to being a, a potentially sentient humanoid creature. Right. 
Well, and I think um, I think this is one of the key things that I wanted to get into when we when I talked about the idea of how play changes as the players get older, right? Uh, because content and and content appropriateness is is one of those areas that I think is going to evolve greatly. I think what's appropriate with my with my eight year old is very different than what would be appropriate with a seventeen year old in Mike's club. Uh, Mike, would you agree with that? Yeah. Um. The, the content, I mean, it's uh, D&D sort of as part and parcel of it, uh, uh, death and slaying stuff in the game. And uh, um, uh, I just kind of try to monitor that and make sure it's, you know, like mm-hmm. not anything that uh, would, would make students uncomfortable. You know, like if, if they were talking about, I don't know, torturing or mutilating somebody, I would, uh, you know, put the, put the cap on that. And uh, I'm, always, I'm always keeping the pulse on who's who's comfortable and, and is everybody uh, in enjoying themselves and, and being able to just walk the room and, and look at everybody. It, it's pretty obvious uh, what's going on with respect with that. And so, you know, uh, either indirectly through observing them or directly talking to them, mm-hmm. um, I'll, I'll sort of veer the course and, 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 you know, tell them, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to modify what's going on. Um, and and the in my group, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of like romantic and sexuality being explored there. Uh, I have a lot of uh, LGBT plus students in the club, and they they use D and D as a way to express and right. explore, you know, romance and and sexuality and things like that. And I think that's that's super healthy, and and is kind of one reason I. I want to have this to be a safe space for them to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and to I learned to I, do it in a healthy way instead of, you know, a more negative one. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I make sure it stays at least, you know, PG and stuff like, right. yeah. like you said, I don't want them going home and saying, uh, <laughs> you know, they had some orgy or something, and yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, so, so I'm explicit about that, you know, like kind of where, where the boundary is there. Right. Uh, you know, don't do anything you wouldn't do in front of your parents. Yeah, I, f- yeah, I, I, find, yeah. I find that people, I think, uh, underestimate in terms of content what is appropriate for, um, for t- teenagers or even preteens. Uh, although I think the, the key to the, all of that is that we're all talking about playing either at school or with our own children, at which point um, there are other things that sort of, uh, other reasons you need to sort of dampen down the content, I guess, you know, uh, and control that. Like, I, I don't have a, I, I don't think my own, uh, my 13 year old would have a problem with uh, a gory description or a visceral description of, of a monster, um, you know, doing whatever. Um, but I wouldn't, but I have always made it a point in my school groups, uh, or even at my table to, to, to take wherever I think they can handle it and lower it about two or three notches. Um, just because Mm -hmm. I don't want anybody getting freaked out and me not expecting it. And then if it's at school going home and telling mom and dad about it, or if it's my own kids freaking out the younger brother or any of that, you know, so. Well, I think that's a yes, but no problem because uh, that's that's completely accurate for for youth groups or after school stuff or mm-hmm. whatever you're doing. But it also depends on who you're playing with and if you have parental permission. Because I say this for one reason, um, there are times that you're using groups for very specific things. So, right. for example, I used to run groups for autistic children, specifically ones with Aspergers who had anger management. So, with the express permission and signed consent of their parents, and in those instances. 
classes, it was very important that we push boundaries because that is how they learn to expand their social toolboxes. So the mm. things that made them angry or, you know, were issues and trigger points for them were actually things that we gamed for. So to be clear, there are very valuable instances mm -hmm. in which D&D should be pushed to boundaries with children, but do make sure that you have parental permission or you're a, you know, and, and that you're competent enough to do that, you know, right. like school counselors or, or degree in psychology, uh, clinical role. Uh, Dr. Megan does a lot mm -hmm. of that. And I think that's a very important part of our society. We did, we did an episode with uh, a bunch of um, professionals um, in that kind of field uh, a, few, a few months ago. So people should go back and listen to that. Yes, they should. <laughs> um, so that happened yeah, at I, my school um, is uh they put on a production of She Kills Monsters by uh, Ki Nguyen mm. uh, a couple years ago. And uh, uh, are you guys familiar with that play? Vaguely, yeah. I think actually mostly through your tweeting about it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it deals with some really heavy themes of, of death and sexuality. It's uh, about a uh, young girl whose uh, sister dies, and she discovers a notebook that she had with a campaign in it and uh the, this this sister doesn't play D, &D and uh she goes to the deceased uh sister's D, D group and and shows them the notebook and and says yeah i kind of want to play this campaign and and learn about my sister through this way and uh they do and the sister had written into it uh a bunch of real life characters from from her story and and uh had made versions of all these characters that were gay and she discovers that her sister was gay and there's this um you know layer of uh the the D, D universe that they're acting and then the in real life universe uh yeah. being presented to you and uh it, it was just a really cool kind of synergistic um thing going on between the club and this play and and you know students kind of seeing uh what what the potential of of D and D is to. Uh, oh, absolutely! Yeah. I, I've seen children, a lot of children over the years, come out in their game group well before they found the, yeah. the courage to come out at home or with, you know, less close <clears throat> friends and things like that. It's almost like a trial ground for. Mm -hmm. Let's see how this could be responded to. Yeah, that's that a, helps give them the, the courage they need. I see that a lot. I, uh, I when I ask uh, students about their characters, we're filling out character sheets or index cards or what have you. Um, one of the things that I am very explicit about is I will ask uh, what pronouns they want me to use with their character or if they're not sure. Yeah. And uh, a lot of, you know, and I, I, the other thing I let them do is I let them change. And I, you know, I'm really, <laughs> this is, I mean, it's a game and we have, we own it, right? We can do what we want with it. And yeah. I'm very, very flexible about um, students who want to either retcon or change their character along yeah. the way. Um, I've had students who wanted to change, like create a new character um, explicitly because they wanted to change uh, the gender of their character. And some of that was, you know, very personal exploration in some cases. Um, mm -hmm. And then, and the, the last thing I want to just mention related to all that is I have a pretty firm rule, and I know this may be different in, in with older kids. Um, I suspect it might be, but with the middle schoolers that I have that are just creating these characters, they identify very deeply with these characters quite mm -hmm. often. I have a no-killing PCs rule with mm -hmm. all of my dungeon masters, yeah. and 
I'm just really upfront about that. I'm like, look, and it, you know, it doesn't weirdly does not take away the tension from the games. Like you would think like, it'd be like, right. Hey, we're not dying. That's great. But yeah. uh, there's still high tension in the games and, mm-hmm. and that's not what, you know, they're not there for, am I going to die or not? They're there for like, who am I going to meet? What am I going to explore? What are the relationships with the other characters? Right. And so just having that rule in place, uh, I, I mean, you can imagine how traumatic it would be if you had a character that you created that you identify with and all of a sudden, you know, yeah. a friend kills your character as the DM, or I would, I did that. It'd be terrible. Yeah, my my own my okay. own son started uh, DMing uh, the club at my middle school after I left because I was finishing grad school, uh, and so he he became a DM there and ended up actually killing his best friend's character, and it became a thing for about two or three weeks with between the two of them. Yeah. Oh so. no. <clears throat> One thing um, that might be of value to somebody is we had a, a, a person who was playing a character that was uh, female and they decided that they wanted a male character, which was very relatable to their life. They ended up coming out as translator. And I ran an entire campaign where they were on it. it all of the, the party was on an adventure, on a quest to find the item to help them become the other gender. Mm. And it was really interesting mm. to see how wonderful that was for the the young person that was on the quest to have all of their friends questing along with them as if it was you know okay and it was normal and and no big deal um i think that really helped them a lot and i i would advise that anybody who gets the opportunity that's a wonderful way to handle it that's really cool so tracy we are at about an hour or so at this point and i know we have a panel full of teachers and parents who are probably tired and it's almost my bedtime uh but i want to make sure that your notes are thorough that you have have had all of your questions answered i have had all of my questions answered excellent (laughs) then i think that uh if unless anybody has any last words they want to share then we'll uh wrap things up any last words Okay, so we're going to go ahead and call that the end of the episode. Uh, we'd like to say thank you to our guests. Uh, Mike, where can thank folks find me. you? Oh, you're welcome. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Wildspeaker. And Mike, the first time I, uh, I think the first time I met you on Twitter was uh, you were mentioning that you take donations at your gaming group. Um, can you tell people about, about what you're looking for and what that's about? Yeah, we always need do donations. Uh, I uh, I have a you know collection of D and D books, minis, accessories. We we play a lot of Magic the Gathering uh, and other games. So anything that you can you can give to the group. Uh, what I do with it is I either give it away to kids for free, you know, uh, or uh, I have a program I call Game for Grades, where you turn in A's in order to get more Magic cards, get a D and D book, get some new dice, stuff like that. So anything you donate is is going directly to that. So you could give a kid his first set of dice, his first uh, magic deck. And, you know, especially if you're interested in, in getting this stuff to kids of color, girls, LGBT plus kids, uh, and growing the community in that way, this is a great way to do it. And if they want to uh, reach out to you and do that, they should do so via Twitter. Yeah. DM me on, uh, at Mike wild speaker. There you go. Awesome. I'd also like to say thank you to BJ. BJ, where can folks find you on the internet. Oh, I'm really easy to find actually because I, I made my Facebook BJ Hensley one, my Twitter is BJ Hensley two, and my Instagram is BJ Hensley three. It helps me and everyone else remember where I'm located. 
Excellent. Uh, awesome. And they and they can also keep track of you uh, and your work for, with Playground Adventures and Lone Wolf at the various websites for that, I assume? Yes, playgroundadventures.net and wolflair.com. And then lastly, I'd like to say thanks to Ethan. Uh, where can folks find you? Thank you, Tracy. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Ethan Schoonover, and Schoonover is spelled like school. It's S-C-H, so at Ethan Schoonover, and I tweet there regularly, uh, often using the hashtag, uh, hashtag D&D Girls, um, talking about the, uh, the club that I run. So, yeah, that's the easiest way to find me. Awesome. And we'd like to also thank all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links using the Amazon or DMs Guild or being a patron of the show at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Tracy is available on Twitter. She is at Sarah Darkmagic. That's Sarah with an H. Uh, I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H, and the show is at The Tome Show. And that's episode 323, where we pass down joy and fun to younger generations in this episode of... The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Oh, wow.